Well, hello and good morning, Ward Church. My name is Jenny Neighbor. I'm the director of Young Adults here at Ward. It is a pleasure to be with you all here this morning. I want to say good morning and welcome to those of you joining me here in the sanctuary, to our friends online, and of course our friends over at Farmington Hills with Pastor Sean. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is a great day to be together. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. This summer we've been looking at a series called Under the Sun, where we've taken on a lot of experiments that Solomon conducts through the book of Ecclesiastes and his search for meaning and purpose in this life. And with each week, as we've looked at these things found under the sun, we have concluded that our true meaning and purpose is ultimately found above the sun in Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at the wealth experiment, asking the same questions and ultimately uh, deciding how it is that we are to relate to money and possessions in our life today. Before we dive into that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful and grateful to be in your house, um, Lord, just to be in your presence. Father, I pray that in this time that you would speak to each person here, that you would quiet our hearts so that we would be able to hear the word that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would move me out of the way so that you would be the one that speaks. Make much of yourself speak here today. Bring your presence in this space. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this year, my husband and I embarked on a new journey called house hunting, and I've never really heard anyone talk about house hunting in the most positive light, and I'll say I see why now. It's, if you know anything about the market today, house prices are still a little high, interest rates are definitely high, and the houses go fast. I'm talking in a matter of days. It's super, super competitive. And so we decided this would be the year that we look for a house. And like anyone, we sat down, we determined our budget, this is our ideal amount, and we began to search. And I'll just say really quickly, we learned that our ideal number did not match our ideal house. So after some thinking, we sat back down again, and we said, okay, let's stretch that budget just a little bit more. And sure enough, the houses got a little bit better. And we quickly realized, what is no surprise to any of you, that the more money you have, the better house you get to buy. And now we have found ourselves, me, in the last few weeks, searching a little bit more and a little bit more. What happens if we increase our budget this much? Now, if you know my husband, Matt, you know that we will never buy a house out of our budget. He is fiscally responsible to the T, which I'm thankful for. But this process has showed me just how easy it is to get caught up in wanting a little bit more, a little bit more. And that's because often we can tell ourselves that a little bit more, especially when it comes to money, might make us a little happier. Or at least it lets us do more, have more, buy the nicer house, and maybe we'll even worry less. But Solomon is going to give us a little bit of a different take today in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he puts it this way in five, chapter 5, verse 10, when he says, Whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. He says, once again, this thing found under the sun, like everything else we've looked at this summer, is meaningless. In other words, money is temporary. 
And because it's temporary, it ultimately will not and can never fulfill us completely. And in fact, he goes as far as to say that the more we love it, the less we'll feel like we have. Essentially, the more we want more money, the more more is not enough. Good luck if you're tracking with that. So the more we love money, the more more is not enough. And that's what he says here. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. How then do we relate to money? Well, Solomon continues his experiment as we keep reading through chapter 5. Let's pick up in verse 13. He says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Solomon says here that money is temporary, and he sets up this experiment through a story of a father, a father who spends his whole life toiling away, sacrificing, working really, really hard to gain more riches, and that's his whole focus. But before he can spend the money, enjoy the money, or even invest it elsewhere, it's all gone through one misstep. And Solomon says that's all it takes to lose everything. One misstep, one misfortune. Money is temporary. And he drives that point home even further when he zooms out and he looks at the bigger picture of life and he says, think about how you come into this world and think about how you leave. Naked we come and naked we'll go, he says. In other words, when you come into this world, you come in with absolutely nothing in your hands, nothing on your body, nothing that is truly yours to own. And Solomon says, that's how we leave. We leave with nothing in our hands, nothing on our body, nothing that's truly ours to own. Money is temporary. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't be wise and discerning in the time that we have it. Solomon himself grieves the fact that the father has lost it all and has nothing to leave for his son. He's just making the point to not neglect the fact that money is temporary. And even when it's given to the next generation and to the next, it is still here one moment and gone the next. Money is temporary. And because it's temporary, we know, as we've learned this summer, it cannot fulfill us. And so the question is then, what do we do with this reality? What do we do with the reality that money is temporary, that money cannot fulfill us? Well, Solomon sets up two paths for us to follow. As he continues the story of the father, he gives us a path of greed or a path of contentment. He says, these are the two paths you can follow. Let's keep reading. He says, this too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain? Since they toil for the wind, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. He continues the story of the father and he asks, what does he gain? Well, he gains late nights of frustration, affliction, and anger. And if you read more of chapter 5, Solomon says that in his worry and in his drive for greed, he was often kept away from sleep. And he's saying here that the path of greed, the path that is focused on more, 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 will result 
in a life that is filled with frustration, anger, anxiety, maybe even a point of cynicism to where you begin to believe that you maybe can get what you need, but you'll never really have what you want. The path of greed is marked by this deep desire, constant drive for more. And often in this path, we can begin to miss the reality, which is that the money that we have is a gift from God. We can begin to convince ourselves that we are the sole reason it's there, that we are the ones who keep it, that watch over it. And so we can find ourselves in a life that is so focused on tending to it, so focused on getting more of it, that we lose sight of God's provision in our lives altogether. We twist it to a point where wealth can begin to define us. It begins to tell us if we're okay enough. Maybe that bank account number has to be a certain number or size in order to make us feel okay. We begin to twist wealth into something it was never meant to be because it's temporary, right? So it can't define us. Solomon says there's, there's another path though. Besides the path of greed, there's a path of contentment. Let's read verse 18. He says, this is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. He says, this is what is good, to live within what God has given you. He says to enjoy it, to live life to its fullest within the means that you have been given. In other words, it's to relate to money as it is a vapor, to enjoy it in its time, to give thanks to God, to recognize his role in your provision. And ultimately, the path of contentment is one that says, God's provision is sufficient for me. And it's important that we hear this though. Solomon isn't saying just go squander it all. He's, he's not saying to just get rid of everything, right? He mourns the fact that the son has nothing left, that the father could leave him nothing. But he's saying take delight in the work that you have. Recognize your role in bringing in these things. But ultimately, don't get so focused on this path of more, on what you have, that you begin to believe that your meaning and your purpose, your hope and your future can be found in money, because it can't. Rather, the path of contentment is marked by a heart whose future and hope, meaning and purpose is found in Christ alone. It's the path and the heart that says, Christ is sufficient for me. And so these are the two paths that Solomon sets out before us, which begs the question, what path do you find yourself walking on today? Are you walking the path of greed, or are you walking the path of contentment? Or Jesus offers us this question in a different way when he asks us, are we serving two masters? Are you serving two masters? See, Solomon wasn't the only person in the Bible who gives us two options when it comes to how we relate to money. Jesus himself actually has a lot to say about money and possessions. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives his most cohesive teaching. And so I'm going to spend the rest of our time together today in the Sermon on the Mount asking what Jesus has to say 
about money and possessions because it helps us better understand what Solomon is trying to say in Ecclesiastes and gives us some application for today. So let's start with the first line here. We'll see in chapter 6, 19, Jesus begins to teach on money when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermins destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says here what Solomon has already told us, which is that money is temporary. He says in your lifetime or the next, this will all be destroyed. And so basically, he gives us this challenge. He says, if that's the case, then why not invest your whole life and your whole heart in things that are eternal? Invest in your relationship with God. Invest in your relationship with others. Invest in the church and the kingdom and make a life that's focused on sharing the gospel with those who have never heard it. Jesus says money is temporary, so invest in what is eternal. He continues in the next verse as he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now you might be wondering what do eyes have to do with money? Well, Jesus uses an idiom of his day in verse 22 when he says the eye is healthy. In that day, when you would tell someone that their eye is healthy, that meant that they were, one, living an upright and righteous life with God, and that, two, they were caring for the needy and the poor. And so what Jesus says here is have a healthy eye. He challenges us, and he says that the reality is that our generosity and our relationship with God will affect the way that we see the world but it will also affect the way the world sees us. If we look out onto the world that's in need, there's no shortage of that, and we are called to a place of empathy and action, then we have a healthy eye. But if we look out onto the world and we're so focused on our own possessions and money, then our eye is unhealthy and we find ourselves distracted from God. So Jesus' challenge is to have a healthy eye, and he continues in the next verse as he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's no longer beating around the bush on this one. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And note here, he doesn't say you should not serve both God and money. He says you cannot. In other words, it's impossible to serve both. Why? Because where we give our worship is where we give our full selves. It's the thing that we love. It's the thing that we pay attention to. And so what Jesus says here is you have to choose. Because if you give your full worship to money, then you will be stuck in a cycle of always needing more. But if you give your full worship to Jesus, he says, then you will be welcomed into the full freedom and peace that Christ offers. What he's saying here is that you cannot worship money and experience the full freedom of the kingdom. Why do we know that he says this? Let's look at the next line. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Here we get this therefore at the beginning of verse 25. And this is where Jesus connects this whole teaching on money 
with one of the most commonly quoted passages on worry. If you've been in the church before, you've probably heard Matthew 6's teaching on worry. But if you haven't, this is where Jesus pauses for a moment and he says, look around. Look around the animals and the fields and the things of this world. Is God not taking care of them? Well, if he's doing that, then isn't he going to take care of you? He says, don't worry about tomorrow for the Lord is going to take care of you. And so what Jesus says here when he connects these two in that therefore is that when we worship him, we will have nothing to worry about. But when we worship money, we will be left always wanting more. And so that's the challenge that Jesus sets before us. He says, worship me, worship only me, and I will bring you peace. And so the question is then for us today, where are we serving two masters? What path are you walking on today? Or from the Ecclesiastes perspective, what vapors in this life are you holding on to, hoping that it will give you meaning? And I want to take a moment to point out a bit of a myth here, which is Jesus isn't actually as poor as we often think he is. I think of him as having like absolutely nothing, but we know that that's not totally true. See, before Jesus was a rabbi, he was a carpenter. So we can assume he made some kind of living wage. And once his ministry began, he was actually supported and cared for by very wealthy people. Often older, wealthy women helped come alongside and provide for the disciples. Even so much so that he had a disciple who managed his money. And Jesus had poor friends. He also had rich friends. And he would eat with them. And at one point, the Gospels even admit that he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton because of these friends. And at the end of his life, people cast lots for his garments, which tells us that there is at least some value there. And I point this out to say that it's sometimes easy to write off Jesus's teachings as he just didn't have anything, but he actually lived into the tension that Ecclesiastes talks about. It's very obvious. He makes it very obvious. He sides on a life of simplicity and less and worshiping the Lord alone. But he leans into the tension, which is that money and our possessions are good things. They're gifts from God. Money isn't the problem. Wealth isn't the problem. It's how we relate to it, what we do with it that matters. And Jesus models this well, which then gets us the question of how do we then live into the same tension as Jesus did. Well, let's look back at what he just said. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Jesus says, start here. First, submit your money, submit your needs, your desires to the Lord. It first takes us coming before the, before the Lord, confessing what path we've gone on and submitting those things to him. And practically, there's two steps that we can take today, which the first is to trust God, and the second is to steward well. And if trusting God is uh, the first step, Jesus gives us a good start as he continues now in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? He says, this is the place to start. Look around you. Look at the world. Look at creation. Don't I take care of them? 
Well, if I'm going to care for a bird or for a flower who can't work for money, who can't earn anything, then why would I not take care of you, child made in my image? Jesus says, you want to know how to start trusting God to provide for you? Look at your own life. I love that song we sang earlier, look around with your own eyes. And so I want you to take a moment now, and I want you to think about a point in your life where you found yourself wondering if you'd really have enough to get by, if you had what it would take. Maybe it was an unexpected car repair a health issue, or a school payment, maybe a job loss, or something exciting, a new house, starting a family, moving to a new city, a moment in your life where you knew you didn't know if you had what it took. Then when you have that moment, I want you to think about the results. What happened in the end of it? For, for Matt and I, it was his truck broke down years ago, and we really didn't know how he'd pay for it. He needed it to get to school. He was already paying for school. And about a week later, his parents came up to him and said that word had gotten around church that so his truck had broken down and someone was willing to cover the whole repair bill, which is to say, if you're here, thank you for that. It was a game changer for him, right? When, when he wasn't sure if God would show up, God showed up in a huge way. And I don't know what the result is for each one of you. Maybe it's small. It's probably unexpected, but I know that God provided somehow. I know that because in my own life, I have so many examples of where God showed up when I didn't know if I'd be okay. Through extra hours at work, really generous and gracious parents, or even closed doors. God showed up, and it's because he's a good father, as he says, who will clothe us, who will feed us, who will take care of us. He will never leave us. And so with that assurance, with those promises, it leads us to our second point today. We first trust God, and second, we learn to steward well. Let's see what Ecclesiastes has to say about this. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. With the assurance that the Lord will take care of us, we are then challenged to steward this well. And how does Solomon say we do this? Well, first we own our role, right, in our work. We enjoy the work that the Lord has set before us. And in many times and in many ways, God provides for us through our work, whatever means that is for you. And so Solomon says, do that to the glory of God. Allow him to provide for you in those ways. The second thing we do is we enjoy the gifts that we've been given, right? He says the, the good thing is actually to enjoy these things as they come in life. We said it before, money isn't the problem. How we relate to it, what we do with it is. And so good things are okay. So buy the house, wear that new shirt that sits in your closet, or eat the food, go to the restaurant, use the new tool, enjoy these things as they've been given to you because Reality is that they are temporary, they are vapor. And then we are to be generous with the things that we have. As Jesus says, we are to have healthy eyes, which means we give to those around us. I wanna encourage you today to open yourself up to the possibility that you may be provision in someone else's life. Invest in the kingdom, give back to the kingdom of God, and start today by just saying, Lord, these gifts are yours. What do you want me to do with them? May they be to your glory and your kingdom. And lastly, 
We do all of this with wisdom. Obviously, we don't just squander the gifts that we've been given when we enjoy them. Rather, we spend responsibly. We think about it. We should be discerning and wise about the places that we give our money, the ways that we support others. We should give thanks in all of these things to the Lord, giving to his kingdom and trusting in what he's doing. And lastly, it's okay to invest and to save, to give to the next generation, to make a life that is sustainable. The Lord allows us to be wise with our money, but he says, don't let it define you. It is temporary. My prayer today is that we can all learn to live into the tension just as Jesus did. A tension that says that money is good, but it is not forever. It's a gift given to us in this moment, but it is never something to define us. And for that, for that definition, we must always look to the giver of the gift. We must look to a good father who will clothe us, who will feed us, and who will never, ever leave us. And in that we find our peace and our rest. So we trust God and we steward well because we cannot serve two masters. And my hope today is that each of us can be a person who worships God and God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you today. I just want to start in confession. Lord, I, I want to confess that there are so many times where I wonder if you really do provide. Where I think about the words in Matthew 6, and I, I sometimes question if you really will show up, Lord. But I thank you that no matter my own doubt, no matter my own skepticism, you continue to show up. That you have given us a plethora of things to look at, to be reminded that you are sufficient for us, that you care about us, that you are a good father who has never left us. Lord, I pray for each person here that we may be able to submit the gifts that you have given to us, that we may be able to look in our lives, especially in seasons when we feel like we're without, and see the places that you have showed up. Lord, thank you that you are a good father. May we be people who only worship you, who only serve you, who give our full selves to you and feel the peace and the presence of your son. We pray this in your son's name.